today is a sad day because today is our last day in the book of Acts. So turn with me to Acts chapter 28. We're in the last chapter of Acts. And we've been in this book for, this is the 21st message in the book of Acts. So the better part of, uh, that's what, two-fifths of a year? And you guys have hung with it uh, pretty well, so I'm proud of you for that. Um, as we start off this morning, I want to just uh, give you a couple of review things. Uh, we missed last week, so we'll kind of review a little bit. Uh, first of all, a few uh, facts about Acts. Um, first of all, who wrote it? Who wrote it? Luke wrote it. Um, I was going to see if I heard anybody say Paul this time, because uh, I have secret People here, they're going to, like, um, take you out outside if you say Paul uh, wrote the book of Acts. Um, okay, so the book of Acts has a lot of Paul in the book, but it's not, it's not a story written by him. Okay, so Luke wrote the book of Acts. But Luke was with Paul throughout much of the time that these things were happening. Now, also, something you may not know. This is going to sound a little bit like school, so I apologize in advance. But uh, Acts covers over 30 years' time. From the beginning of the story to the end, it's about 30 years have passed since Christ ascended to the end of the book. And um, I know when you're reading the Bible, you think in terms like, you know, Acts chapter 1 was probably Monday. Acts chapter 2 was probably Tuesday and, uh, and so on. But it covered like a lot of time here. So 30 years have passed since the beginning of this book. And secondly, go to the next slide. During the story of Acts, Paul wrote these books. He wrote Galatians, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians. 1st, 2nd Corinthians, and Romans. So as the stories of Acts are unfolding, Paul is writing these books to these different churches, okay? But then after the story of Acts is completed, Paul wrote these books, these next books. Go to the next slide. He wrote Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, Philippians, 1st Timothy, Titus, and then 2nd Timothy. Interesting note, Paul knew that he was probably going to be going to his death as he's writing the book of 2 Timothy. So he's writing Timothy, knowing that he's probably going to die for his faith. And these are his last words to, to Timothy in this letter to him. So that's some background. Now, if you remember, go to the next slide. The next slide is a map that I put up there last time. And if you remember, Paul is on his, one of his final journeys all the way to Rome. And we stopped last time, two weeks ago, right here. Remember the storm that we were part of? The storm and the, the snake and all that kind of stuff. You guys recall that? I know school has started since then, but you should, it's been like two weeks ago. So uh, today we're starting back here in, um, in this place called Malta. That's where he is leaving from. He's going all the way up here, eventually all the way to uh, this town. Can you guys pronounce that? How, do, how would you say that? You guys aren't Italian. Stop being posers. Putioli. There you go. There you go. All right. That's actually close to where Naples is located today which is the birthplace of pizza, by the way. And then um, they make it all the way up here to Rome eventually. So uh, that's the journey we're on today with, with Paul. Now look at Acts chapter 28, verse 11, starting in verse 11. After three months, they were at Malta for three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. Now, my question would be, why would Luke tell us this kind of information? Let's pause here for a moment. I'm wondering if 
if he's trying to show us the irony here, that Paul, who is taking the gospel to Rome, is being transported on a ship that has false gods at the front of the ship. What they would do back then is they would carve these, like, figures of gods on the front of their ships. They thought those gods would protect them from, I guess, sea monsters and storms, anything of the like. And so the irony is that the gospel itself, the the story about the one true God is being transported on a ship that has false gods at the front of it. I'm just wondering if Luke has a sense of humor when he, he writes that. Look at verse 12. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there we set sail and arrived at that place. The next day the south wind came up. And on the following day, we reached, in the words of Jacob, can you say it again, Jacob? There you go. There, there we found some, <laughs> I don't know, it's just funny. This is true. Uh, verse 14, there we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the form of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. Do your first three questions at your tables. Go ahead and discuss. Okay, we're going to spend some time on this concept for a moment. What are the two words... What are the words that uh, Luke uses? Listen up. What are the words that Luke uses to describe the people that he meets in these two stops? He calls them what? Brothers and sisters. Now, I know in the church we, we think of that as just, that's just normal. That's just what you call people, I guess. Hey, brother, right? That's just what Southern Baptists, good Southern Baptists do, right? I, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, and it was like everybody would, like these guys with Southern accents, which I never really understood their their deal, but... They would always be like, hey, brother, and you're like, is that just what you say in this part of the country? Is that just what happens? So, but we, we don't think of that word as really meaning anything because it just kind of happens casually. But Luke refers to these people as brothers and sisters, and I think it's really profound because what he's implying is that when you are, when, when two people are Christians, when two people have a relationship with Christ, they are related to each other in a spiritual sense. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so here Paul, Paul comes along to these two cities, doesn't really know anyone. They don't have anything else in common, different cultures, different, different backgrounds. Paul shows up. They see him immediately as, that's, that's Paul, that's our brother. He sees them as brothers and sisters. They don't go to the same school. They don't wear the same clothes, hear the same kind of music. But they see each other as we've got Christ in common, therefore we have everything in common. It says they spent a week with him. I mean, how many of you guys would spend a week with someone you don't know? Like, we're just, we're going to come, we're going to come see you for a week, all right? Okay, those of you that say yes, you're just the odd people in the room, okay? In a good way. In a good way. In a good way. I am saying that with all love in my heart, all love in my heart. Okay? But there are four of you. Hey, I did not say you were ugly, Jacob, all right? But here's the deal. 
But most of us would probably would not do that because you just, you're like, I don't, I don't know who that person is. I don't, I don't know what they're about. But Paul and these people that came to see Paul, they knew, okay, he's a brother in Christ. He's our brother. Paul saw them as brothers and sisters. Now, what I want you to think about is this. The church is supposed to be like a family. We use that analogy quite a bit. The church is supposed to be like a family. But here's, here's the issue with that. I, I know in the room there are many people in this room that have difficult and tough family lives. And so the analogy of the church being like a family, you might think to yourself, well, well I don't like that idea. I don't, I don't connect with that. And I understand that. But even, even where you're at in, in your difficult situation, I also understand that sometimes the church can be worse than your bad family to you. I understand that the church can be a place where you don't feel acceptance. You don't feel like there's a family dynamic happening. You know, your home life is tough, and the church isn't that much different either. There's dysfunction in the church. There's plenty of dysfunction in the church. But what I want to remind you of this morning is that when, when, when Luke uses these words, I think he means something by it. And the church is supposed to be like a family. The church is supposed to be that you're related to each other. Now, let's take this a step further. I want you to look at this verse in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 2. It's on the screen, so you can look at this uh, next verse. It says, treat younger men, this is Paul writing to Timothy, treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, with absolute purity. Now, here's what that means. For the guys in this room, the young ladies in the room are your sisters. For the girls in the room, the young guys in the room are your brothers. Now, I want you to catch this. When you think about a dating relationship, when, when you think about um, the physical aspect of a dating relationship, I will remind you, she is your sister. And you're like, that's gross. I know. That's why I said it. Okay? She is your sister. And for you ladies, I'll remind you that he is your brother. Okay? Until, listen up, listen up, I'm serious about this. Until, for the, guy, for the girls, until he's your husband, he's your brother. All right? For, for, the, for the guys, until she is your wife, she is your sister. Okay? And I'll tell you something, that um, I don't have a sister. I have two older brothers, but if I had a sister, I have a daughter now, so it's like 10 times worse than probably having a sister when it comes to the protective nature that I feel towards my daughter. But let me tell you one thing. The first guy that calls our house, like he will die. He will die, okay? And, and I'm serious about this. You, you, you've heard me say this publicly, all right? So if you find someone that's dead, you'll know it was me. So, um, so but I feel this protective nature towards my daughter, and that same protective nature, I think, Paul's trying to say, that is your sister for, for, the, for the girls. That guy is your brother. There should be a family dynamic there. That you, you protect someone. You don't exploit someone. You protect that person. And so I want you to think about this. Those of you that are dating or thinking about dating, this should be like family. 
You treat them like family. You protect them like family. You don't exploit, you protect. You understand this. The family should be like the church. The family, the church should be like the family. Let's look at Acts chapter uh, 28, verse 16. Verse 16, when we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Now, so Paul is under what's called house arrest. What that means is that there's a soldier that's handcuffed to him all the time. Now, it's not the same guy. They take, they take four-hour shifts, apparently. So in a 24-hour in a time frame, there'd be six different people handcuffed to Paul. Now, in today's day, we have uh, ankle, I guess, anklets and bracelets they can wear, that, where, where you know if a criminal's not where they're supposed to be, they can detect it somewhere in a far-off place, and they can get in trouble for that. They didn't have that back then, so they had to literally chain a guard to Paul. Can, can you, just for a moment, can you imagine being that guy? Can, can you imagine being the Roman guard chained to Paul for your four-hour shift? And he's just like, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you all about Jesus, right? I mean, and, and you're sitting there going like, when is my shift up, right? And for six, for, for six different guys just rotating in. You're rotating in. Can you imagine how many of those guys got saved because of what Paul had to say to them? And they're not going to go anywhere, right? They can't go anywhere. I mean, just the awkwardness of, of he's with you all the time, right? It's just an awkward situation. So for two years, he's under house arrest in Rome. And Paul is sharing faith with these guys, I am sure. So we're going to skip down to Acts chapter 23 from here. What happens is Paul, Paul calls a meeting. Paul calls a meeting with all the Jewish leaders in that, in that area. He calls a meeting with these guys. In verse 23, we pick up there. Verse 23, it says, they arranged to meet Paul on a certain day. And Paul's going to try to convince these Jewish guys of Christ and the gospel. And it says, and they came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning until evening, explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. So Paul is trying to persuade these guys about the, the Messiah status of Jesus Christ. He's trying to persuade them. This, this Jesus Christ you've heard so much about, he is God. The only way to the Father is through his son, Jesus Christ. And so he's trying to convince, trying to persuade these unbelievers about Jesus. And this is, this is exactly what I feel like my mission is here on Sundays and Wednesdays. I don't pretend for a minute that you guys are Christians. I don't, I don't take for granted for a minute that you guys are already Christians. I am constantly trying to persuade you, trying to convince you that this thing is the truth. Because I've heard far too many statistics that say when someone goes off to college, they stop believing. And I think, wait, stop believing? My thought is that if someone can stop believing when they get to college, I'm not sure they ever believed in the first place. So I am trying here to convince you and to persuade you in the way that Paul is doing with these people here. Every Sunday, every Wednesday, that Jesus Christ is God. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the only way to salvation. In the book uh, by C.S. Lewis, anybody heard of him, C.S. Lewis? Anybody here read Mere Christianity? Raise your hand. A few of you have read that. Um, there are three things that C.S. Lewis points out. He says this. He says, you have to agree that there are only three options for Jesus. Because here's the deal. 
when you go to college one day, a professor's going to stand before you and say, Jesus was a good moral teacher, but he was not God. There's no evidence for him being God. They'll say he was a good guy, did a lot of good things. This legend about him grew because of his followers, and that's why we have this story made up about him being the Messiah, him being God, and all that kind of stuff. And the resurrection's a big hoax is what they would say. So C.S. Lewis reminds us we have three options when it comes to Christ. The first option is that Jesus was a lunatic. That means he thought he was the Messiah, even though he really wasn't. Now, if you and I meet a guy on the street today that says, I'm the Messiah, we're like, loony Ben, right? Right? And so on on some level, you kind of understand what he's saying with this, but if Jesus wasn't really God, but he said he was God and thought he was God, then he was a lunatic. That's option number one. The second option is that Jesus was just a bold-faced liar, that he knew he wasn't God, but he convinced people that he was. He sort of did magical tricks like that guy on TV, David Blaine, and uh, he, um, he convinced people he was God even though he knew he was not God, therefore he must have been a liar, right? The third option is that Jesus really was God, and he showed himself to be God while on earth, and everyone else who believed he was God and knew he was God, they gave their lives based on that truth. And here's how I can say that you can say he's not a liar, because if, if this whole thing was based on a lie, then why would his followers give up their own lives for a lie? Why would they do that? At some point, you would say, okay, this is serious. They're going to kill me. I, I'm going to call the bluff on this one, right? And so there really are three, only three options when it comes to Jesus Christ. And here's the reality. If Jesus Christ really is God, if Jesus Christ really is the Messiah, then you have two choices to make. You can either submit your life to him or you can rebel against him. It's rebellion or submission. There is no in-between. You can surrender your life to him and submit your life to him and his lordship, or you can live in rebellion against him. And then when you die, you will spend eternity separated from him in a place called hell. That is the sad reality for many, many people. Those are the two options. I think so many of us in the church try to live in the in-between. Well, I'm going to submit part of my life to him. I'm going to give him just this one chunk of my life. And we don't surrender our lives to him. And we live in rebellion against him. Those are the two options that you have as a person on this earth, rebellion or submission. Look at verse 24. It says, some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made his final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through, the Israel, through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that 
God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Do uh, questions four, five, and six at your tables. Okay, what I want to do now is summarize what happened. Just I want to summarize for you what happened after the book of Acts is written. This is not recorded in Acts, but it's really important. So uh, you guys have heard of the guy Nero, the Roman emperor, really evil dude. This guy was so evil. This guy was so evil that he set fire to his own city, Rome, and he blamed it on the Christians. And he did this so that he could justify a persecution of Christians. In fact, this guy was so evil that he had his own mother executed. This guy was so evil, he would actually capture Christians and take them captured, tied up and bound, put them on stakes alive in his garden at night, and light them on fire so they could have light in his garden. This guy was an evil evil dude, Nero. So during the reign of Nero, here's what happened. Peter was killed for his faith. He wasn't just killed for his faith, but here's what happened to Peter, the apostle. Remember the guy that denied Christ at one point? Then he gave his life for Christ. Peter was killed under the Roman Empire, and what happened to Peter was was this. He was going to be crucified because he was a Jew. He was going to be crucified. But when he was going to be crucified, he put up a fight, and he said, I cannot die in the same way that my Savior was killed, so put me upside down. Peter didn't think of himself worthy to suffer the way that Christ suffered, so he requested to be crucified upside down. This is how much Christ changed him. Paul. Paul was a man who went from beating Christians, possibly killing Christians, to a man who gave up his life for the gospel. He was beheaded. His head was chopped off because he believed in Jesus. These men, these men were so changed by Jesus. We have two men, one who denied Christ, one who persecuted and killed Christians, and they both gave their lives for Christ. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, what about us? What are we going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? What you believe about Jesus is the most important thing you will ever believe. What you think and believe about Christ is the most important thing in the world. And so in this story, when Paul preached, some people believed, 
and some people walked. And this is ex- just what happens in the church today. In this room, we, we preach Jesus here every Sunday, every Wednesday. Some believe and some walk. Some put their faith in him and some decide to live in rebellion against him. And, and some of you guys have been coming here for, for, for months, weeks, even years. And, and you still don't truly believe yet. You, you still haven't surrendered your life to Christ yet. You still have not submitted your life to Christ. This passage says that those who don't believe, they have hardened hearts, deaf ears, and blind eyes. This is just what happens when you and I reject Jesus. We lose our spiritual sensitivity. We become deadened to God. We become turned off to God, closed off to God. And so I want to ask you three questions this morning. And the first one is this. Will you surrender your life to Christ? If, if you've not already submitted and surrendered your life to Christ, will you today surrender your life to Christ? Will you discontinue your life of rebellion against him and turn towards him in submission to him and surrender your life to Christ? A few weeks ago, after a Sunday morning, a guy that goes here asked me if he could talk to me about some stuff and describe some things he'd been going through in his life. And I'm trying to counsel this guy as, as if he's a believer. And at some point, the Holy Spirit, I feel like, just asked me, told me to tell, ask him, hey, do you even believe this stuff yet? Are you even a believer yet? And he, in his honesty, he said, no, actually, I'm not. And I was like, well, well, let's start there. Let's, let's talk about that first. And, and so I was blown away by his honesty, and I loved his honesty. So we had lunch the next week, and we talked through more about the gospel, questions, doubts, those kinds of things. This guy tells me today that he prayed to receive Christ this past week. Yeah, that's cool. But there has to be a point in your life where you say, I want to submit my life to him. I want to surrender my life to him. And too many of you people in this room, you just kind of come into church. You, you sort of fall into the church thing. My friends are going, I'm going to go. I'm going to be a part of the church. And, and there's got to be a point in your life where you say, you know what? I want to submit my life to him. I, I'm not just going to play the game of church. I need to submit my life to him. And so the question is, Will you submit? Will you surrender your life to Christ? The second question is this. Will you live in community? Will you live in community? Will you see the church as a family? Will you see the church as brothers and sisters in Christ? Will you stop treating people like they're not family and treat them like they are family? Will you live in community? Because when we have Christ in common, we have everything in common. Will you receive people just like the people that received Paul, just like family? And this is why we do things in smaller groups. We've got to push things smaller so you can experience those kinds of friendships, those kinds of life-transforming relationships. You see, too many people come into the church, and we just sit in a chair, and we just kind of take things in. We don't use our gifts. We don't see ourselves as part of the body of Christ. We treat the church like a restaurant. We just sort of show up, consume its goods and services, then go home and watch football. 
That's what we do in the church. So do you see your place in the body of Christ as you're a part of a family, part of a body of believers, and you are needed here? You are a necessary part of the body. Will you live in community? And the last question is this. Will you live on mission? Will you not just see your faith as, okay, I'm good, I'm a Christian, I live in community, but will you see your faith not as a dead end, but as a vessel to push people toward, towards faith as well, to, 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 to convince other people and persuade other people about Jesus and, his, and, and the fact that he is God, he is the Messiah? Will you let your life be on mission? Paul preached Jesus until his death, so will we? Will we preach Jesus the way that Paul preached Jesus? Will you, will you be so passionate about Jesus, they'll have to chop off your head to shut you up? Will, will you have this passion for Christ that wants to see other people come into a relationship with Jesus Christ and surrender their life to him, see them be part of the community, see them live on mission as well? Will you let Jesus Christ change you and move your life in that direction. There's a way that all three of these things tie in. Go to my next slide. Surrender has to be at the center. So many of us try to think, there's so many people in the church, especially in youth groups, they sort of show up to events, show up to um, outreaches. Yeah, I'm going to go help the poor. I'm going to go on a mission trip. I'll, I'll go into impact. But the question is, if you haven't surrendered life to Christ yet yourself, then what good is it? What are, you, what are you doing this for if you have not yourself submitted your life to Christ? What are you trying to convince people of if you've not done it yourself? So there has to be surrender at the very center of your walk with God. The second part of that is living in community. Once again, so many of us, we're a part of a group. We're a part of things and events but if you have not surrendered your life to Christ, then what good is it being a part of community, being a part of the body of Christ? What's the point of that if you've not submitted yourself to Christ first? These things have to flow from surrender and flow outward. That's the direction they have to go in. You cannot separate these things from the others. They are all intertwined together, but at the very middle of that, there has to be this heart of surrender and submission to Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do this morning is, as you're thinking about your next three questions, I want you to answer this one question. Have I submitted myself and surrendered myself to Jesus Christ? I'm not talking about church. I'm not talking about a mission trip. I'm talking about, have you surrendered your life to Christ? Have you come before him and said, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I'm a sinner that is separated from you because of my sin, and I have to have you as my Savior. Otherwise, I will spend eternity separated from you in hell. I need you in my life in that way. Have you said that to him? If you're someone that would like to discuss that with someone here this morning, I am here at the front. Other leaders are here as well to discuss that with you after this service. Please do not delay. As Paul as we see in the story of Paul and Peter, these men gave their lives for this gospel. And my plea to you this morning is that if you have not submitted your life to him, do it today. Do it today.
do your last few questions and go ahead and pray at your tables when you're finished.